On the Empire Podcast this week, we head down to the Winchester and wait for this all to blow over as Brad Pitt battles zombies and World War C. Or said, we also talked to Max Brooks, author of the book on which the film is based, and tried to survive a visit to the pod booth from none other than the Stath himself. All that plus news, views, and reviews on the only movie podcast that would offer Jason Leach a job right now. He could just sit in the corner being nice. Hello, pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and yes, that was a reference to The Apprentice. Apologies if you don't watch it. Anyway, welcome to the Empire Podcast. I'm absolutely delighted to welcome, as ever, three colleagues of such lethal cunning that they made Lord Sugar look like Lord Sweetenlow. Boom. Joke. Wow. Right there. Was it? Kinda. First up, we have a lady who's strong, confident, and never in the bottom three. It's Helen O'Hara. Thank you, I guess. Uh, secondly, we have a resident art house guru, a man whose business proposal to Lord Sugar is a new restaurant chain called Planet Subtitle. Today's special, Steak Bella Tartar. <laughs> Hello, Phil. The Semlin here, right? Hi, Chris. Yeah, very well, thank you. Uh, last but not least, it's my great pleasure to welcome a new voice at the pod booth, an Australian voice, a hairy Australian voice, a voice we thought had left us, a bit like Margaret on The Apprentice, uh, but with more hair. It's a man who was responsible for making our fitty bloggy so it's look and sound so good, relatively speaking, amongst other things. It's a dynamo from Down Under, the ballistic missile from Brisbane, our very own Crocodile Dundee, Sam Toy. Hello. Hey. G'day. That's me. <laughs> I'm just leaving a bit of dead air so that I can put some sound effects in later of like church bells and desolate wind and maybe a cricket chirping or something. Hey. But thank you for thank you very much. <laughs> just like the old days. It's, it's delightful to be here. Desolate yeah. wind. Should Sam, that be your sound effect? Sam, uh, you you came. Your your story's quite interesting because you came to uh, London. Was it 2004? I think it was mm-hmm. uh, for two weeks of work experience on Empire Magazine, mm-hmm. and you effectively never left. I blatantly refused to leave, yeah. to the point where I did actually camp out under an Empire desk at one point. <laughs> you did, he's, yeah. He's not even kidding, that yeah, actually happened. That happened. He was like the troll under the bridge. Uh, but then eventually we got rid of you, and you went to Australia yeah. a couple of years ago. But now you're back, flying visit, quite unexpected. Well, it's good to see you, man. Okay, we're all settled in. Let's begin with your questions and comments uh, on Twitter. Uh, at Ian Farrington asks, <laughs> how much is a pint of milk? Ah, hoist by our own petard. I would say it is, insert the right price here, Ali. I would give the smart-ass answer and say it's the same as a pint of anything else, 568 mils or something. No, we're talking monetarily. Monetarily, we do not have milk by the pint in Australia, so I'm unable to answer. Do you just take it straight from the cow or the snake or whatever it is that you have? (laughs) Punch the cow and steal the milk. Milky Nell for Ramsey. I presume he provides most of the milk in Australia. (laughs) It's 70p in my corner shop. Really? Yeah, but I think that's a bit over the odds. I think in the supermarket, it's It's a little over the odds. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Phil, it's weird that this came up because I was in I was in a supermarket like two days ago, and I was thinking, how I don't have any idea. And we asked this question, (laughs) so I'll check. And it's one pound (laughs) ninety eight for a pint. Waitrose. Oh, Waitrose. Hang on, Waitrose pint. No, I don't know. It's about it's about fifty or sixty p, I think, isn't it? It's something like that. Something like that. Forty nine p in my local Sainsbury's, roughly. The only person who's ever actually got it nailed on because they knew they were doing a pint of milk is uh, Simon Pegg who went out and checked that morning and got it absolutely spot on I had no idea uh, the answer is blah 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 uh, so uh, here's another question from at Medifets what's your favourite movie tagline this is a great question it's a great question I can't believe this question hasn't come up before and we're on podcast 66 mm. there's really good ones for bad movies sometimes like Alien vs Predator terrible film obviously but I quite like whoever wins we lose yeah I use yeah. that a lot you know uh, well, yeah, about yeah. Alien versus Predator. Generally about football <laughs> matches. So, for example, if Manchester City are playing Chelsea, whoever wins, we lose. It's, right. It's a, okay. it's a moral quandary. I, I'm nodding like mm. I understand that. Yeah, 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 I know you are. Crank 2. He was dead, <laughs> dot, dot, but he got better. Like uh, Predator 2. 
bit of bump about Silent Invisible Deadly, something like that. But then they went, he's in town with a few days to kill. Ooh, that's Ooh, clever that work. Something um, else. Always like Total Recall. They stole his mind. Now he wants it back. Mm. Schwarzenegger ones are pretty good. Yeah, I would say. In space, no one can hear you scream. As of a course, possibly the best of all time. Perhaps I would say. Three um, colors red, from the maker of Three Colors Blue. <laughs> <laughs> I like Curse the Were Rabbit. Something wicked this way hops. <laughs> so I was a fan of the thing. Man is the warmest place to hide. Oh, that's I a think good that one. Really good captures line. the film really well. Yeah, yeah. But there can be only one winner, and that has to belong to the great Dead Snow. Einschweig die. Absolutely, <laughs> it's amazing. Uh, uh, yeah. Okay. I was going to say something else, but honestly, that's a win. That that's a win. That's the winner. Um, okay. Moving on to at Bill Chick, or Bill Chich, or Bill C Hick. I don't really understand this guy's name anyway with the criticism of Man of Steel's third act who criticised Man of Steel's third act honestly Uh, what's the best film to be let down by a terrible third act Mm. Sunshine it was doing so well up until that point and then it just comes screaming down and it almost destroys the movie if the first two thirds of the movie hadn't been so brilliant why does it destroy the movie because up until that point it had been this wonderful cacophony of human error forcing their own problems and forcing them to get through to the to the end of the film, and then it was a it was a crushing disappointment. So it becomes a slash film levels. after being this other thing. For yeah, it kind of turns into Event Horizon a bit, doesn't it? There's yeah. nothing nice. wrong with turning you into say Event that Horizon. Say that like it's a bad thing. Yeah, more movies should turn into <laughs> Event Horizon, in my opinion. Um, I would be tempted to say another Christian Nolan movie, which is Batman Begins. Which I actually don't think the third act is terrible, but I do think it's redonkulous. I don't think you can have something that that vaporises water and sewers but, and doesn't kill people at the same time given that we're mostly water like, so that just took me out of the film sorry to be a science nerd <laughs> we're mostly water yeah ugly bags of you're mostly not, water you're not because you're mostly thing. coke zero <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of recent summer blockbusters that have just gone for the same man of steel approach of just trying to pulverise your eyeballs in the last half an hour mm. even the Avengers I would hesi- what? Um, hesitantly add to that list disrespectful without hesitation remove it from that list yes, because the Avengers has so many amazing character moments in that last act mm. that, that elevates it far above Man of Steel's third act but, it's uh, the third act that yeah. saves the Avengers I would argue wow you, you, really you yeah, could yeah, argue I, I felt the I Avengers think was very sluggish <clears throat> in the middle did you? yeah I got, I got really bored of them wandering around the ship I really and, loved uh, all the sort of quiet character moments and, and found that the it has Chitori so were many crowd pleasing moments in that third act uh, I, I can't remember anything that happens in the end of uh, Dark of the Moon or uh, you know or pretty much Man of Steel is just people punching each other forever but ooh Dark of the Moon somebody jumps out of a plane I remember that that's true There is, a, and there's a bit where a skyscraper t- falls over but honestly can you re- really remember anything other than that no no there you go see I disagree I think that I hate that film but I think that that, that was a great sequence the, the, the free diving but that's a great action moment that's a great action sequence that's not a great third act no exactly but I can remember that I don't remember anything about the Avengers final battle except that there was no <gasps> sense of jeopardy because I don't think anyone's going to die <sighs> that's going to make me really unpopular isn't it? Yeah, but whatever yeah. not um, speaking to you anymore I, other, um, a really classic example of this is The Magnificent Ambersons which is on course for being an absolute masterpiece and then obviously the studio kind of got involved and cut mm. 40 minutes and it just ends just really just ends it's really weird like one of my school essays there's no kind of final <laughs> sentence it's just over and the credits roll and you're wondering what's happening which is a real shame because yeah. they also destroyed all the extra footage that Orson Welles shot so you can never put it back together again it's weird that they never, you know it's less absolutely that's gone gone it's absolutely gone. gone the same thing happened with um, uh, Cleopatra Joseph L. Mankiewicz uh, his original intention was to shoot two movies 
Uh, it was going to be Caesar and Cleopatra and then Anthony and Cleopatra mm-hmm. and it was, they were both going to be three hours long so it was going to be a six hour epic and then there were some problems with that film in terms of the budget and overruns and whatnot. you may have heard and uh, the studio basically took the film off him and cut a three hour three and a half hour version then the, the, the version is just about to come out is four roughly four and a half hours something like that so there's still about an hour and a half maybe even two hours of footage that Mankiewicz shot that's just gone and they're trying to find it but they're never going to find that we're in this new era where obviously franchises everything and, and suddenly third acts don't, aren't really third acts anymore. They're like part third act, part first act of the next film. Yeah. And that is, I think, moving, shifting everything in a really weird way. Yeah. If you look at a film like The Hunger Games, if that were to stand alone, you'd be so unsatisfied by the final act because it, it doesn't really end anything. It just it just moves on to the next film. So from a pure cinematic you know, if you're watching a film in isolation, there's mm. a lot of third acts that don't really work structurally. I agree, although I think The Hunger Games is a, is a bad example just because the first book was written as a discrete book and and that third act is the book's third act. So that's... Still, it still doesn't, for me, work as yeah, a third act of a film. Uh, but yeah, I think, I mean, I think there are much more egregious examples out there oh God, um, yeah. in, in the recent past. Maybe it's because you know that there's going to be another Hunger Games movie, two, three Hunger Games movies when you're sitting there to watch it, so you know it's not the end. But yeah, there are I get that, but Star Wars, it doesn't matter that there's going to be, you know, Empire Strikes Back because it works alone. You can watch mm. it on its own. The same applies to Raiders of the Lost Ark. Same applies Both to Both of those were made as standalones originally and then just got a single Well, that's what I mean. Yeah. I mean, that's that's what we're missing. Now it's now it's, you know, they're thinking of four movie arcs and etc yeah, etc. Yeah, yeah. et so, crazy. you know, you want to see the whole thing as a discrete as a discrete entity, I think. Might, might, might help the directors as well to make it more satisfying this is I don't personally believe this but I know that some people in the past have said that uh, uh, the movie I think Helen you and I are in agreement mm. on this uh, is Pixar's masterpiece Up yes uh, some people said that has a weak third act um, certainly after the brilliance of the first people say I think that the, the problem yeah so. I think the problem is how do you match the first 20 minutes uh, of that, that film the, the first 20 minutes are the best of anything ever <laughs> but uh, but that's not to say that the that the end is bad. It maybe just doesn't reach quite the same giddy heights. Mm. It's not a third act, but I'll yeah. tell you a film that tremendously disappointed me in its very closing moment, in its final shot. In fact, mm-hmm. I was I would beg the director to re-release the film without its final shot. And poor old Michael Shannon again. It's Take Shelter. Oh, I like wow, that. Wow, really? I hate the final shot of Take Shelter. I hate knowing one way or the other that he was right or wrong. But you don't know. One you it's do. funny you should bring this up because we've had we've had Jeff Nichols in and we've had Michael Shannon into the podcast in the last month and we've we've raised it with both of them. Oh. And Jeff Nichols in particular was like, you know, neither of them will talk about it. It's deliberately clouded in ambiguity what happens. And I think I really like that ambiguity. Mm. I didn't feel it was ambiguous in any way because of that, that very, very final shot of I won't say what it is just in case a few people haven't might not have seen it in, in their listenership but I think we need all our listeners to go away and watch Take Shelter yes. <laughs> so we can talk I, I would about yeah. it because it keeps coming up 99 out of 100 minutes which are absolutely brilliant we'll, but, we'll wait we'll wait but if, if the ending is giving rise to these sorts of conversations that we've had a lot of recently about this particular film um, then surely that's a successful ending in a way you know Inception was the same it's like what does that final shot mean that is great because people that's go away and talk about it. That's fine. I can, I can, I can enjoy that. But he was doing so well, yeah. and and then he told me he gave he gave but me. You the think it's real? But is it real? Everyone has to see it before we can continue that sentence. Absolutely. Well, the question is, what's the best film to be left by a bad third act? And I'm struggling. Yeah, I guess I, I'm. I'm not. I don't think Sunshine's third act is as bad as people say. I think the movie still works. A couple of Spielberg ones, films that I no. love. I think War of the Worlds. I uh, really yeah, enjoy yeah. until the third act. 
oh, it goes slightly slightly askew. And I didn't. It's not the third act that's a problem with Schindler's List, but there is. A, I didn't really like the final, the penultimate scene. You know that it had shifted from neutrality, emotional neutrality, to something that was very, very tear jerky, and I didn't. I wasn't comfortable with that. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. may you may not be entirely wrong on that point. Um, anyway, let's move on. So, at DT two seven nine one asks. Do you make notes during a screening or try to remember all your observations afterwards? Interesting. This is a note for, this is a question for critics. Helen? Mm. Uh, I very rarely make notes. I only do so if I'm not sure I'm going to have anything to say or if there's a particular line of dialogue that I think I might want to quote or if I get really furious during the film and start scrolling things, which I did during The Dark Knight Rises. There I said it. Anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to fear. Fear leads to suffering. Suffering leads yeah. to note taking. It does. <laughs> note taking leads to more anger, and it's a vicious cycle. Uh, Sam, what did you what did you do? I do not take notes in a screening because I'm usually because I'm quite a slow writer by hand, especially, and I'm afraid that I will look down at my notes and miss something important in the film. I generally work at the proviso if it's <laughs> if it's good enough, you'll remember it when you come out. This is true. Um, it's not always the case, obviously. Uh, I wonder if more and more you're going to see people typing notes on their phones. Yes, um, sometimes you do, and then and then unfortunately you have to kill them. Yes. So that is uh, a bit of a shame. Uh, when we all get Google Glass, we'll be able to like just think our thoughts into our well, that'll eyes. Well, that'll something, be something different. That, right? Phil, what do you do? You, I imagine you're quite conscientious. Why do you imagine that? <laughs> I, just, I, I just imagine that you are. I imagine you're quite fastidious about your note-taking. You probably have an easel. An easel. <laughs> I'm just doing these ones with a paintbrush yeah. in the distance. You don't, I don't you take notes. You take I'm, an artistic interpretation of the film. I draw pictures. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I do take notes, but you know, obviously, it's dark. And what I tend to do is write something down, and then write something else on top of it, and then continue to write things on top of that until it looks like a sort of Isha etch a sketch. And then I come out. I've got no idea what I was writing. So ultimately, you do kind of rely on memory. Um, okay. So at Movie Malone asked the last question of the week: How many films do you see each year, and what's the split between press screenings and personal couch choices? I, I've got a question that's a slight skew on this because uh-huh. this is obviously going to be tricky to calculate. We've all flown to lucky enough to fly to Australia, Sam, for obvious reasons. I haven't. How m- have you not? No, never oh, been. What an egregious Aww. thing to say then. I meant to go twice. But you're, but, flying, uh, you're going to you're going to somewhere far away next week. Aren't I am. You? How yes. many films would you watch on that length of flight? Ooh. I've been known to watch six on a flight to the states. So what? What? That's yeah. not possible. Just a bite if they're short. Mm. It could mm. be done. Yeah. Okay. Jesus. How many films did you watch on the way from Australia? Uh, not many because I was busy doing other work this on this particular occasion. I, there have been times when I've watched three or four. You know, you can get some great catching up done on films that you just. Mm. <clears throat> do not want to pay to see um, so it becomes a very good opportunity in that yeah, sense yeah a plane could be a, a, a great for that and <laughs> it's heightened atmosphere it can also make you laugh at the Pink Panther well something <laughs> has to which is not advisable <laughs> I laughed at the Pink Panther too we took um, 14 and 8 year olds to watch it me and my godson's dad no no we went to the cinema at the Odeon in Holloway Road and okay. um, the bit where Clouseau and yeah. his boss and Dreyfus says I need you to, to fly to Tokyo and he goes, but I cannot fly. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and my friend and I were just sort of pissing ourselves, <laughs> laughing at that, and all the kids just stony-faced <laughs> throughout. I imagine that joke's actually better out of context. Yeah. Was, uh, in the oh film God. itself. It, it was I like there's, uh, there's a, the hamburger interrogation scene where he's trying to... Oh, no, he's not an interrogation scene where he's been trying to talk how to say the, the, the phrase, I would like an hamburger. It, that's really funny. And there's a sequence where... Um, Someone's saying something about Beyonce Knowles and uh, Clouseau stands up for him and goes, No! 
Stop it! Can't you see she's sexy? It just made me laugh. For, for uh, with, but I was on a plane, so you can't walk out. With Steve Martin, though, you feel like you're still laughing at jokes from other movies that he's been in <laughs> yeah, correct. a little bit. Yeah, anyway, back to the question. Back to the question. Oh, yeah. How many films do you see each year, roughly? Um, I, three? Oh, I don't know. I mean, probably um, Fairies, probably two or three a week in terms of press screenings and two or three more films. I mean, probably... L- Six or seven a week only. We're probably not. Are we? We're, we're, we're probably not quite as prolific as the as the newspaper critics who have to see everything because yeah. we share it between a team. You know, we're, we probably yeah. It's probably for me anyway. Six or seven a week. Does Three. this include films you've seen before and are rewatching? Yeah, absolutely. Because oh, you know, I watch about two a day of those. Do you? Uh, do we see more than one a day, roughly on average, three hundred sixty-five days in a year? Leap years, accepting. Uh, do you think we see that many? Probably thereabouts, yeah. I mean, Probably. occasionally you'll take a break and watch like a TV series box set and sort of, well, yeah. I personally will binge on that for, yeah. well, I don't play games, but, yeah. you know, the, you'll binge on that for a week and maybe watch a few less films during that time, mm. but generally. You may go out at some point. No, don't be ridiculous. <laughs> That's just crazy talk. Crazy talk. Uh, okay, well, thanks for your questions. As ever, you can get in touch with us uh, via the usual channels. Twitter, we're at Empire Magazine. The hashtag is Empire Podcast. You can email us at podcast at empireonline.com or you can Facebook us through a sheep at us, why don't you, at uh, Empire Magazine. Okay, interview time now. Max Brooks is many things. He's the son of Mel Brooks and Anne Bancroft, for one thing, which might make you think he'd become a comedian and an actor, but no, he became an author instead. And his second book, World War Said, became a sensation, recounting mankind's battle to survive a zombie apocalypse. It's now been turned into a huge movie starring Brad Pitt. When Brooks came to London recently, we jumped at a chance to sit down with him and pick his brains. Talking to Max, Helen, and Phil. And we are joined today by a very special guest, Max Brooks, author of, among other things, World War Z. Welcome. Thank you, and you, you can say Zed. I won't get offended. Thank you. I was trying. We, we have uh, we have arguments about this on the podcast. I tend to go with Z just because it it rhymes with three, and I feel like that it kind of works better. But you know, I, I get accused of being American. You're not. You're not the first person to to say that. Uh, strangely enough, and this is weird. This is, I guess, um, a Commonwealth thing. The English people I meet mm. are okay with saying World War Z. Canadians, not really. No, no, their their national identity is very strong to them, so they <laughs> they need they need to force that Z. Right. Well, we finally find something that Canada is not tolerant about. I guess. No, they are very intolerant of the Z. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, let, let's start at the beginning. How, how do you go from working on Saturday, Saturday Night Live and that kind of thing to to writing about the undead? Oh, well, I actually wrote my first zombie book way before I got the job on Saturday Night oh, okay. Live. Uh, it was the late '90s. And people were starting to flip out uh, in America about the Y2K scare. Mm-hmm. And I'm not talking about uh, the crazy survivalists who actually wanted it to happen. I mean grown-ups <laughs> with jobs and lives. Uh, people were buying tins of beans and generators and all these survival guides were coming out. Yeah. And I thought, well, what about one for zombies? Because I'm afraid of them. And I went looking for a zombie survival guide. Wow. Nobody had written it. They were all off, you know, having a life. Uh, and I didn't have that problem. So I thought, you know what? I have two extraordinary gifts. I have an obsessive compulsive disorder and unemployment. <laughs> and I'm going to fuse them into a book. So wow. I sat down and wrote Zombie Survival Guide. Uh-huh. And it all, it all rolled on from there. Well, I actually stuck it in a drawer for years. Oh, really? I didn't think it was ever going to get published. I mean, who? come on. Who's going to want a very real researched book mm. about something that's not real because it's it's com- played completely straight i mean it's a it's not this is not a comic no book no i mean it, it was really me thinking what if there was a real zombie plague mm. how would i survive how yeah. would i purify water and what guns would jam and all those real questions that you don't see in the movies yeah 
Um, do you have any favourite vignettes in, in World War Z? Because we were talking about it earlier. We certainly do. You know, I mean, it's kind of like choosing your children. Um, but I think there there were certain elements that I had never seen anywhere that I so wanted to explore. Uh, I refer to it as the the Alan Alda chapter because in the audiobook he reads it. Uh, it's Arthur Sinclair describing how do you reorganize the economy. Mm-hmm. And, and these are questions I've always had. Sort of, you know, we live in such a service-based, globalized economy where very few people actually make anything. And the people who do make stuff, it's all part of a massive global supply chain. So what if all those chains were suddenly cut? How would you make something? How would you keep people alive? And, and that was something I wanted to explore. Mm. To me, that was interesting. So who's going to survive in Hollywood? Uh, that's a really good question. I think Frank Darabont, uh, who created Walking Dead, and... Well, he's got the expertise, right? Yeah, yeah. And I don't know, maybe that's it. John Milius, wow. without question. Maybe, maybe John Milius. <laughs> yeah, so maybe Frank and, and John Milius, and that's about and it. Do you think George Romero would... Well, George lives in Canada. So, you know, they wouldn't they wouldn't necessarily have a zombie problem. They have socialized medicine. So, you know, the moment someone gets infected, they'll be fine. Did you see, actually, they actually debated zombies in the Canadian Parliament they in did. February? They did. You know, I am I do my I do zombie self-defense lectures, and I'm always harsh on the Canadians. And I say, listen, fellow Americans, you know, don't think you can just flee north because they're going to be waiting for us. They're going to slam the Maple Leaf Curtain down, and they're going to be waiting with a sharpened hockey stick and a Molson. The, the idea of zombies being a metaphor and in, and in your book it's kind of almost like a metaphor for globalization it kind of starts in China which the film is going nowhere near for reasons of I guess commerce as well I, I probably probably you know I, I don't I don't know their reasons I, I was not part of the process I can tell you that me as an author I turned down two Chinese publishing deals uh, because they wanted to censor the book the oh. first time they said let's change the name of China to you know some fictional country and it was a very Chinese communist argument. It was sort of like, look, everybody knows it's going to be China. You're not hiding anything. All we want you to do is just change the name. And I said, no, China's China. I'm sorry. The The second time they said to me, uh, you can keep the China name, but we want to put it online. The chapters, we're going to take the chapters out of the book and put them on the internet. So there's that extra hurdle that people have yeah, to... Yeah. I said, no, no, I'm sorry. I know there's like a billion of you, and if you all gave me a dollar, that would be really <laughs> awesome. But, <laughs> you know, China's China, and I have to have... I have to be true to my book. Yeah. Do you think there's a problem with Hollywood self-censoring? I don't... I, please. Are you I mean, it's Hollywood. We're talking about the same industry that brought you The Great Gatsby in 3D. <laughs> That's my next yeah. question. <laughs> I mean, I was going to ask, you know, you you weren't tempted, I guess, or, or didn't want to write the script or, or weren't asked. I don't know. I wasn't asked. Okay. I, mean, I mean, it wasn't, you know, and, and that's just basic economics. Mm. You know, a movie that big, everybody has to justify the decisions they make. So for a budget of that size, nobody is going to allow a guy who's never written a major produced screenplay before to get behind the wheel of that. Mm. That's just not the way Hollywood works. You have to have solid mainstream credits in order to be able to justify that job. So did you talk to the guys who who worked on that? No. uh, Actually, I spoke to the first writer on it, J. Michael Straczynski, who I'm a huge fan of. Amazing writer. Oh, my God. I mean, I I admire everything about him. So we actually hung out for a while. um, But then he moved on, and then they brought in Matt Carnahan, who I have yet to actually speak to. Okay. I, I wouldn't. I mean, I know what he looks like from his IMDb page, and that's about it. And and how about um, fast zombies? Because I think that was the most discussed thing when we saw the the first sort mm-hmm. of trailers and so yeah, on. Yeah, not not a fast zombie guy. No. 
I'm just not. I mean, that's. But you know, I, I I'm not naive enough to to not understand why they didn't do that. I mean, the bottom line is, I'm a slow zombie guy. I'm always a slow zombie guy, but I also know I'm in the minority. The truth is, most people who are not zombie fans. Uh, and just most people in general think fast zombies are more exciting. I mean, even in the TV show Walking Dead, when they sort of lock in on their prey, at least what I saw in season one, they started doing some sort of hyper limp. They sped up, <laughs> you know, and that kind of made it more cinematic, more interesting. Uh, but that's just not it's not how I think. Yeah, it's, it's not your zombies. How do do you think nations would respond differently? Which nations do you think? How, how would Britain do? in a zombie apocalypse I mean uh, you know I, I, I hate to admit this but I'm kind of an Anglophile <clears throat> um, I think Britain would r- respond magnificently uh, I used to live in England I used to live in Islington when I was working for the BBC and I used to get in these constant arguments with my English housemates you know because their attitude was if, if you're nationalistic then you're a child and I used to try to to perk them up and be like, guys, come on, England, <laughs> Britain, you know. It's the blitz spirit. Yeah. Uh, so, no, I, I, I think that Britain would would take its lumps, yeah. just like America, but I, I think both countries would, would come out swinging in the end. I think yeah. our sort of penchant for queuing would leave us vulnerable. Possibly. If you, well, maybe your zombies would queue, and then you could just yes. lock their heads off one by one. Yes. This is, this is how it will work. We were talking as well before about uh, North Korea, mm. um, because we were kind of debating this because because Phil was going well you know what do you think happened in North Korea and I said I think they're all zombies I think they're all in the tunnels and they're all zombies and he thought not so can you can you enlighten us in any way that's a really good question yeah whatever (laughs) (laughs) turn it up if you haven't read the book the North Korea disappears effectively off the grid yeah basically what happens is we're interviewing a South Korean intelligence officer who is saying just bit by bit the North Koreans just started vanishing and and the DMZ got quiet and radio chatter stopped and satellite imagery discovered that there literally was nobody where did they go now that's actually based on real research you know the North Koreans in the 1950s in the first war we bombed the crap out of them and they took it to heart so they have moved a lot of their industry underground they do have underground cities mm. because they are ready for the next korean war so uh, i didn't ha- i didn't make that up mm. the book doesn't naturally lend itself to cinematic adaptation obviously i mean uh, you know the, the funny thing is the the main narrative of this movie is that there's going to be a lot of people who love the book that are going to hate the movie. But what I see is for every one of those people, just out of sheer statistics, there's going to be a hundred other people that are going to love the movie and hate the book because they're going to see, I don't know what, but it looks to me like some alpha male saving the world. And they're probably going to love that. And then they're going to open my book and they're going to say, what the hell is this crap? It's a bunch of interviews. <laughs> Who are these people? Yeah, None wait a minute. Like Brad Pitt. Well, that's actually funny. That was a huge uh, fight I got into with, Par- uh, not Paramount, sorry, Random House. They right. wanted to put Brad Pitt's face on say, the book. yeah. I said, absolutely not. And I have nothing against Brad as, as a guy. I love his work. But his character does not appear in the pages of my book. Mm. And I do not want anybody buying it because they see that book and expecting the, for, the further adventures of Jerry Lane. I don't want to false advertise. So then we got into another fight where they sent me um, a poster to put on the book cover of running zombies forming a tower to jump on a helicopter, yeah. which I said, look, that looks cool. But guess what? Zombies in my book don't do that and can't do that. So I'm sorry, I, I won't use it. So they sent me sort of a generic war cover. And I said, fine, that's, that's <laughs> totally okay. But I will not mess with the integrity of yeah. the book. 
That's very wise, I think. I mean, the the the, the swarming zombies thing. I mean, I I interviewed Mark for Forster for the magazine, and he he had kind of an interesting theory that it's kind of like a, a feeding frenzy. It's like ants right. cooperating, something like that. But it's uh, but it's a big change. Oh yeah, no. I mean, it's a, it. I'll be very curious to see how much of a change it is. Mm. Uh, you know, this is we shall see. I mean, that's one of the reasons I didn't read the script, and I haven't looked at any of the dailies because I have no creative control. So it. it doesn't help me in any way. And I've yeah. also told Paramount this. I said, look, you guys need to know something. I'm a really crappy liar. Okay, <laughs> that's one of the reasons my wife married me. She knows I can never have an affair. <laughs> so whatever you tell me or show me, it's going out there. If I go to a convention or a signing and somebody asks me a question, I'm going to answer it. So don't show me or tell me anything you don't want out there. So I've been pretty much in the dark. Yeah. But are you looking forward to seeing it? Or are you a bit I'm trepidatious? Curious. I'm or? curious. I'm, I'm definitely curious to see. I mean, for God's sakes, we've all been waiting for this thing for, what, seven years? Uh, and then you hear about the changes and this and that. Okay. And, and it's so huge. Yeah. Are so, you, all right, let's see. Will you see it at Paramount or will you, see it, will you pay for it? I'm going to see it in New York. Um, uh, I guess the world premiere here is in London. Uh, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be in New York. So I'll see it then. So uh, you may see me coming out of there with duct tape over my mouth. Um, <laughs> you know, maybe Paramount will mount, you know, march me out with a gun in the back of my head. You're like, <laughs> it was wonderful. <laughs> I don't know. You know, we shall see. Or maybe you'll be leaping from your seat. Right. Joyful. I might be going, oh, thrilled. how lovely. <laughs> what author doesn't want to see this happen to their book? <laughs> Just ask F. Scott Fitzgerald. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I want to ask you about some of the other stuff that you've been working on that you have coming up. Um, the Great Wall, is that still something that's happening? Is that story behind Great Wall is I do a lot of creative work for Legendary. Thomas Tall and I mm-hmm. are, are friends and uh, we have a mutual respect for each other. And every now and then he calls me and he sends for you like the Don. He says, I want to see you. And I don't take meetings with anybody, but I do for him. So one day he called me in the middle, it's almost the middle of the night because I got to see you tomorrow. I got an idea. So I go in and he says, listen, all right, there's a, there's a Marco Polo-esque guy, European, he goes to China and he comes over the hill and he sees this wall and he's never seen anything like this. It's huge. And the Chinese are frantically trying to build it. And he says to this one Chinese guy through an interpreter, whoa, what are you doing? And the Chinese guy's like, you need to grab a shovel and help us right now. And he's why, why, what do you mean help us? Because they're coming. <laughs> and then he just stopped and said, who's coming? <laughs> build me a monster. I want because that's what I do. I world build for him. I build him backgrounds. I build him monsters. Um, I build backstory for him. Wow. So I developed. I wrote a, a story of this great wall, and we passed it along. And I, I'm not sure what's happening to it. I know. I know there's issues with financing in China right now, um, but I don't know. I, I mean, I sort of, I pass the torch and right. I just say go for it. Also, uh, you've got Extinction Parade, which is coming out yeah. very, very soon now. Yeah, that's the big one. That is based on a short story I wrote um, a few years ago, and that is a zombie plague. It's a comic book series, uh, te- only 12 issues. Okay. Limited series told through the eyes of vampires. Right. And for me, it's an exploration of privilege because I look at all human accomplishments as overcompensation for the fact that we're at the bottom of the food chain. We're essentially weak. So we learned how to organize and adapt and invent. Uh, But if you're a vampire, you're at the top of the food chain and you've been spoiled. You're essentially the aristocracy. You have all these gifts, strength, speed, immortality, anonymity. Could you adapt to a world where your only food source is being eaten out from under you? 
Would you have what it takes as a species to rise to the occasion? And so that's what I'm exploring in Extinction Parade. And so what happens if a zombie bites a vampire or vice versa? Well, uh, that's another thing is uh, the, the zombie flesh and zombie blood is toxic to a vampire. But zombies in my story ignore vampires. They don't see them as food. They walk right past them. Okay. And initially the vampires think it's awesome because they've been so hemmed in with the rise of civilization and the, especially the rise of the middle class. Mm. You can't kill anybody anymore. Everybody's got, you know, a paycheck and it's paying so their taxes. God. This ain't Victorian London where, you know, there was 1% and everybody else wasn't worth spit. So they love that society is imploding. It's like Mardi Gras for them. And then eventually they have this inconvenient truth moment where they realize, wait a minute, all the humans are dying or turning. What are we going to live off of? And that's when things really start to get crazy. And I wanted to ask you about um, something a little bit further out. Next year, a graphic novel about World War One that you've been working on for yeah, 14 years. 14 years. Longer uh, than World War One. Yeah, yeah. I wrote it as a, as a screenplay. Uh, it's called The Harlem Hellfighters, and it's about a unit of American soldiers, true story, that the U.S. government actually set up to fail. They did not want them getting in combat. They did not want them becoming heroes. And they threw barrier after barrier in their path. And this unit of Americans overcame it all and came back as one of the most heavily decorated f units in the United States Army. Wow. Why did they want them to fail? The color of their skin. Uh, because this was a time when black people were moving en masse from the South, from the American mm -hmm. South into American Northern cities. And suddenly it became, racism became national instead of local. And so, there were a lot of people within the American government and in the halls of power that thought, oh my God, the last thing we need is for black people to see black heroes coming home, uh, basically saying, yes, we can. So they did everything to say, no, you can't. And it's, uh, I, I can't believe the story hasn't been told. You know, in America, we know about the Tuskegee Airmen, we know mm. about the Buffalo Soldiers, but this story has completely gone under the radar and I've been waiting for someone to do it. And I thought, you know what? I've got my script. I'm into comic books now. I'm going to do it as a graphic novel. Yeah, yeah. but what were the films that you grew up on? Uh, oh. And who picked them? Uh, that's a good question. My, a lot of my parents' films. Uh, but my dad loved musicals. And he was never allowed to express that because he was a comedian and mm -hmm. the world expected comedy. His favorite movie was Top Hat. End of Blazing oh, Saddles. Yeah, no, he, he loved all that stuff. I mean, you know, I, I guess you could say what was different about my childhood was I thought everybody was that funny and that witty. <laughs> you know, you grow up Gene Wilder, he's like my uncle. Alan Alda was uh, was my mentor, he taught me how to write. Wow. Uh, I used to bring him my short stories when I was 14, he'd critique them and like really seriously critique him and talk about language and dialogue. And uh, I thought everybody was like that. And then I would get out in the real world and see people's 50th birthday parties and I, they'd do little skits. And I'd go, wow, <laughs> most people aren't <laughs> as funny as my dad. Who knew? Wow. Who knew? <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank Max. you very, very much. much. Thanks, guys. Okay, moving news time now. Uh, no shortage of stuff to talk about. And sadly, we had to kick off with the tragic news that the uh, brilliant actor James Gandolfini passed away on Wednesday night at the age of just 51 after a suspected heart attack. He was on holiday in Italy. I mean, he is obviously and will always be for many people Tony Soprano. Yeah, it was really shocking and very sad news. And uh, I don't think, well, you know, I think he's going to be very, very much missed. I mean, which is obvious, I suppose. But, you know, as an actor and as a person in Hollywood, the, the tributes flooding in have been, you know, very, very heartfelt and clearly very sincere. Uh, seems to have been a very, very lovely man. Let's talk about Tony Soprano, first of all. Sam, you know, what does that role mean? You know, why will it always be the one that he's associated with? 
it's, it's a crystal clear example of someone getting the role of a lifetime. Uh, Brian Cranston's been lucky enough to have the same thing with Breaking Bad. He'll be forever associated with Walter White. James Gandolfini is Tony Soprano. You, you, you look at the role, who else could have played that role? Who else could have done such a good job? I'm yeah. struggling to think of another, mm. even, even vaguely well-known actor, who just has the physical stature and the fantastic chops to, mm. to have pulled off that character. And he did it all the way through. It didn't, didn't go up and down. The show sometimes went up and down, but he was always rock solid. The interesting thing was always how um, he was never afraid of... Well, obviously, Tony was a very uh, complex, layered, and often deeply, deeply detestable character. Yeah. Right up until the end. Yeah. Uh, and he never shied away from that. And, uh, yeah, it's just an amazing, amazing performance. And he won three Emmys for it over the, the course of the six seasons, which is not bad at all. But he was also a magnificent movie actor. I don't know if, you know, if we can talk about our favourite Gandolfini movie moments. I guess the one in True Romance springs to mind. Yeah, that's me. Yeah, as you? Yeah. Hand, hands uh, down. Hotel That's room with Patricia Arquette. Yeah. Yeah. Terrifying. Fantastic scene. I loved him in The Fantastic in the Loop. And yeah. his particularly his man to man with Peter Capaldi where he describes him as a uh, somewhat sarcastically as a scary scary little pool fucker. <laughs> <laughs> and and said and co- and says that he looks at his temple and thinks he'd probably be a squirter yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah no he's great in that film but uh, that, that's so him he has in the in the, uh, the the kids bedroom where amongst the the doll's house and the detritus of a which is just as a it's a random house party you know there's a, there's a great scene he has in that and it's just towards the end of his it's weird that we're saying this but towards the end of his career he was popping up in amazing cameos you know blinking you miss him almost uh, in Zero Dark Thirty and yeah. mm-hmm. he's fantastic in Killing Them Softly a film he's I saw on a plane great in Killing Them Softly yeah you know he, yeah. This, he, a case of a character within a film who is a case of never meet your heroes it's, it's a great scene mm. This and even Burt Wonderstone he's got this kind of recurring thing where he can't remember his, his son's name uh, <laughs> or age and it's, it's it's really throwaway but it's just really amusing yeah. he was fantastic and he worked with Tony Scott an awful lot he worked on uh uh, I need to go back and rewatch The Last Boy Scout because he's credited as uh, being uncredited in The Last Boy Scout as one of uh, Marconi's henchmen at the end. So I need to go back and rewatch it. I have a vague memory that he is in one of the scenes. Um, but uh, he was brilliant in uh, as the mayor, for example, in The Taking of Pelham 123, which is a very underrated film, yep. I think. Uh, he's really, really funny. Really, really, really funny comedic role for him in that one. I, I hadn't realised how late he came to acting and, and how he almost fell into it by accident. I read our obituary and um, he'd turned up to an acting class and been kind of blown away by how weird all the other actors were and he thought that might be something for him, which I loved. So he came to it late and he started on Broadway and and uh, died so young. So it's a really mm. truncated career, but he made a massive impression in that time. Mm. Absolutely. And the only thing we can say is that, um, you know, the, the, hopefully, and I think Tony Soprano would appreciate this, that the cut to black was quite sudden and he didn't actually suffer that much. So uh, James Gandolfini, uh, R.I.P. Okay, uh, any other movie news now for people? Well, at the complete other end of the yeah. spectrum here, um, Fifty Shades of Grey yep. has a director, Sam Taylor-Johnson. Now, for the three people who haven't read the books and for the many, many millions of people who won't admit to having read the books, um, the uh, the film it's the story of a college graduate and virgin who gets an indecent proposal from a handsome 28 year old billionaire because those are things that exist. Is that the plot? Pretty, yeah. Is that the actual plot? Yeah, I'm not even kidding um, and he basically wants her to sign a contract and be his submissive because he's into S&M stuff and she dithers about it while they have sex and that's basically the first book so um, they're trying to make this into a film um, Genuinely, all the character development in the book, such that there is, comes during sex scenes, 
no pun intended. However, Sam Taylor-Johnson seems like if you're going to have to make this, which apparently Hollywood feels the need, she seems like maybe not a bad choice. I think it's not a bad idea to have a woman make this film, not to be all sexist, but, you know, there's it's going to be grubby enough without the risk of being... I think not so much even necessarily being justified accusations, but I think any male director would be certainly open to accusations of sexism and and misogyny and all the rest, given the subject matter. So it's perhaps wise to get uh, her involved. Uh, But I genuinely, genuinely cannot see how you successfully adapt this to the screen. I look forward to being proved wrong. It's going to be just like a manual. It's going to be lots of rocking and soft core thrusting and whatnot. Is this not basically the plot of Secretary? But unlikely yes. to be quite as postmodern and and uh, clever cheek about yeah. about the things that it. I, I, I'm yeah. I'm intrigued to to know. I mean, to be honest, maybe getting rid of the of the prose of the novel can be no bad thing, given that it witters on endlessly about Anastasia's inner goddess and subconscious who sort of war over her so her inner goddess is very pro-sex and gets very excited when whenever Christian takes his shirt off and her subconscious is is very you know buttoned down and, and starts tutting loudly every time he takes his trousers off so it's just I mean once you get rid of those kind of ticks you know the story will improve but honestly I, there is so little story there I'm I'm at a loss to explain how this will happen. However, it's her problem, not ours. So there you go. Well, there is a director. It's her problem. I think it's it's a book that's popular with women and hopefully she will... I mean, I think that basically, here's the thing. I think ne- women don't necessarily want to see the same things that men do in sex scenes. Mm-hmm. Uh, not to put too fine a point on it. And generally <laughs> speaking, women perhaps want to see less than men do as a general rule, um, making a sweeping uh, overstatement perhaps. So she may, you know, approach it from from that angle, and it has to be made for women because let's face it, men don't care in the first place about these books, and quite rightly so. I'm just wondering: is it impossible to report on this story without descending into euphemism? <laughs> I don't know. It's a, it's a it's a deep dark hole. Um, we're going to try not to go down too far into it. This film is interesting now uh, on many many levels because it it could just be a cheap. It could have been just a cheap sort of skin flick, uh, winding up on the bottom shelf or top shelf, top shelf of mm. of, of. Do you remember video stores um, <laughs> of, of of Netflix, the top shelf of Netflix? Uh, but it's got it's had a ma- really good producing talent attached to it for a long, yeah, long time. Yeah. Michael DeLuca, yeah. Dana Brunetti, the guys who did the Social Network, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dana Brunetti last night was on Twitter, uh, crowing about um, Sam Taylor Johnson being attached as director. And people then automatically assuming that Aaron Taylor Johnson was going to be Christian Grey well, and going, ha, 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 you're wrong. That immediately, you know, sprang to mind as a possibility. That but, would be, uh, I just can't imagine anything weirder than than that. Uh, you know, a, a wife directing her husband in what I'm sure will be quite revealing sex scenes. Um, so it's, it's, but it's interesting. Uh, you know, this, this yeah, seems like I a think, prestige. I th- it definitely seems like a prestige choice, yeah. which is what you need to do to overcome the book's inherent smuttiness. And its roots, let's not forget, as Twilight fan fiction. The roots. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Twilight. It has sold 70 million copies worldwide in its own right. I think it sold more than Twilight. So, you know, this is a huge deal. It outsold Harry Potter in terms of uh, speed of paperback sales. It's a huge adaptation. I'm trying not to be completely sniffy. I just genuinely... Given the content of the book, I don't see how it works. However, I think she she might be the right person. But everyone I know who's read these books including my wife, thinks they're garbage. Yeah. So how is this going to work? Well, I think some of the best, especially 
chick flicks or some but some of the best uh, book to screen adaptations have been from not very good books Jaws is a classic example but even stuff like In Her Shoes and Devil Wears Prada they're not good books and they are I think good films Okay, this might be we've got to hope Mm. another one of those if they're going to do it they may as well do it well and and certainly this seems like a step in that direction it's it's kind of an interesting choice from Sam Taylor Johnson as well because she's Mm. obviously a very 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 well respected artist who's Mm. migrated into filmmaking with Nowhere Boy the John Lennon biopic and and this film it's going to make her a critic's whipping boy to a certain extent I think (laughs) there we go again and I wonder what's in it for her almost it seems it, a very well if it works I think you know there's a lot in it for her and I think yeah. it's it's good that she's uh, she's got this opportunity the interesting thing about this film is Sam Taylor Johnson prestige director uh, producers Dana Brunetti Michael DeLuca prestige producers mm. but almost everybody who's been linked with this on an acting scale uh, has, has distanced themselves from the project and gone what? Fifty? Sh- no, I don't think so. Well, uh, Especially is, the ladies for whom. You yes. Know, well, you know. it's 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 a it's a minefield, I think, for an actress to to do something this potentially explicit. Um, again, the fact that Taylor Johnson's on board might kind of reassure some actresses that you know they're in kind of safe hands, um, and and with someone who kind of understands the potential pitfalls. But uh, it's yeah, it's really it's a dodgy uh, area for them to to approach so casting could be another issue and then they've got to get the script right which you know presumably they, they feel like they're on their way there if, if she signed up it's uh, I, I just don't see how you do it I, I've, I know I've written about this at length on the website already in, in the blog section but I, I genuinely don't see how this works but I look forward to seeing them manage Listen, we, we probably spent too much yeah. time on Fifty Shades of Grey. Mary Jane Watson, we, we were expecting to appear in Spider-Man 2, albeit in a small role. Shailene Woodley of The Descendants mm-hmm. is playing the part. She's done some days shooting, not many, so we didn't expect her to be a big role, but we thought she'd be kind of debuted in this film. And mm-hmm. it turns out she's not. Mark Webb, the director, is, has confirmed, and so is Shailene Woodley, that she won't be in this one, and they're going to hold her back for the third part in 2016. Shailene Woodley has actually unusually been come out and been quite candid about her disappointment that she's not in this film, but that it makes sense for story reasons. And I suppose ultimately they were defeated by... It seems strange that they would have shot, she would have been in the script and they'd shot stuff and mm. then for them to cut it. But things, things change. People things change. change stuff changes. changes. Uh, well, another interesting Spider-Man note that we should very quickly talk about is that uh, they're very, very confident about this one, clearly, because Sony this week announced The Amazing Spider-Man 3, which should really be called The Spectacular Spider-Man, and The Amazing <laughs> Spider-Man 4, which really should be called Web Spider-Man, uh, for 2016 and 2018, respectively. Good lord. Um, so, um, where is this going to end? Are we going to have studios now staking out dates in 2024? Is this going to be like World Cups? It does, seem, to- it does seem that way, doesn't it? Because, you know, if we're talking about a Star Wars film a year, um, yeah. sort of main main film every three years presumably you know spin-offs every every other year um, we've got Avengers being planned that far ahead Marvel's phase three is being announced they've staked a claim to some dates already 2016 2017 you know it's uh, it's becoming I guess it's becoming a higher stakes game and it's part of what uh, you know George Lucas and Steven Spielberg were talking about last week which is that these huge tent poles are becoming you know a, a major part of, of the studio planning and they've and if you're spending 250 million dollars on something I guess you've got to book in a good date in advance true uh, could be slightly hubristic maybe hey perhaps maybe. perhaps we shall see but anyway do tune into our podcast about that uh, on May 25th 2019 it's going to be an absolute <laughs> belter uh, okay time for a second interview now he is Britain's biggest action hero he is not the gay he is quite simply 
the Staith. Jason Statham's best known for kicking ass, taking names, and then kicking the ass of the people whose names he took. But with this month's Hummingbird, he sets out to prove there's more to him than simply beating people's senses with fire hoses, and an admirable effort it is too. He popped into the pod booth earlier this week to talk to Ali and myself about catching David Fincher's eye, and yes, that nickname. We are delighted to be joined in the pod booth by Mr. Jason Statham, star of Hummingbird. Hello, sir. Hello to you. How's it going? I'm good. You filmed not too far away from here. The last time we saw each other, you were on set in Covent Garden. It's Covent Garden, yeah, driving away from a, a little girl with a knife. Yeah, <laughs> no, that's right. Yeah. Threatened by a knife. <laughs> Just another day. It seems to me you you uh, you keep coming back to London to to make movies. You know, Blitz, Killer Elite. Uh, so for every Parker, for every Expendables, you do one British film. Is that is that important? Is that or is that just coincidence? No, it's important. It's yeah. very important. The whole experience of making a film at home is it's very different to making a film out in Hollywood. Uh, you know, it's a much smaller unit. The I always think the quality is is all all so much better. For, it has been in my experience. You know, it's uh, especially this one in particular. You know, we got. Um, Paul Webster and Chris Menges and mm. Michael Carlin these are you know extremely talented people so it just seems that I don't know why I can't sort of get myself in and, in and amongst that kind of heavyweight sort of crowd out in the States but in the UK I always seem to have a, a, an amazing sort of a experience and uh, like wrap myself around really good people It's interesting you, you mentioned heavyweight crowd because uh, I love the story of how you came to be involved in Hummingbird because Stephen Knight was telling me that basically David Fincher recommended you for this role is that true <laughs> uh, according to Steve yes yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know Dave Fincher is one of my favourite directors to even believe that for one second is uh, sometimes you have to you know think I'm a pissed I'm a little bit too drunk is he, is he really saying that <laughs> um, so apparently it is true and uh, I've met Dave Fincher a few times a couple of times and my good friend Jason Fleming has uh, actually worked with him so um, he always asked me you know I, I met with David not so long back and uh, we always laugh about my friend Jay Flem because he's a complete clown is that his official nickname now Jay Flem Jay Flem yeah <laughs> I like that it's like a singer isn't he uh, <laughs> but yeah so there's you know a big compliment to think that Dave Fincher was recommending me to play a particular role are you looking at um, maybe down the line you've, you've you've met with David Fincher in the past you've had your Michael Mann experiences so you t- you, you want to move on to the, the heavyweight guys in the states as well and how, how do you go about doing that you know, if I had the answer, I'd be doing it right now. Yeah. I mean, you, you can't carve your way into someone's uh, psyche and say, listen, I'm doing your film whether you like it or not. It's Unfortunately, that doesn't work because it might be easier if it did. <laughs> <laughs> Just turn up and say one day. Just turn up. <laughs> By the way. <laughs> so, um, no, it's really difficult to sort of uh, to make somebody want to hire you for yeah. a particular role. Uh, that's just the way it is and I think it will always be that way uh, you just have to do good quality work and I think work speaks louder than any other thing and I think once you can break through that door into a into a world where you know all the all the best people are hiring you then it's fantastic but I feel I did that here Steve Knight is one of the, the most sought after writers in the world uh, what a tremendous uh, directorial debut it's like it's one of the most confident uh, experiences I've, I've ever witnessed I mean the guy was just beyond confident and just so so at like ease with himself now as a t-shirt owning i wouldn't say uber fan but big fan of the crank movies can you tell me what are the chances just to keep my heart going (laughs) of there being a crank three Uh, there's a lot of people in germany keep asking this one as well uh (laughs) it's me and the germans (laughs) um i don't know again it's 
you know, I never say I'm never going to do another one of those because there's such a laugh to go and film those. I mean, they're shot on video cameras and and roller skates. Yeah, and roller skates, and you just go around. It's like making a, a student film, but mm. on steroids. Mm. You know, it's uh, there's nothing more ridiculous and at the same time more fun to do than than doing that kind of stuff. It's brilliant. The, the, Neville Dean and Taylor, they're mad. They're completely mad, and to be thrown into that sort of world is um, it's great. But at the same time, how many times you know I mean the last at the end of part two I just got I got burnt to a crisp didn't I, I mean, what are they going to do what's the next thing going to be because it's got to be like sugar rush too many red bulls and then off you go <laughs> what are you going to do I don't know if you've got a good idea we maybe we can present it to the two being a fan we'll see what we can do we'll come up with something by the end of the podcast but looking at your, your career Jason you've got uh, three transporters and some more transporters have just been announced but I'm guessing you're not involved with that that's um, something got announced. I have not been asked uh, uh, about any of it, so okay. I can't give you any scoop on that. You're being rebooted. What's going, what's going on? Reboot, <laughs> reboot, reboot. Um, you, you know, you got three transporters, a couple of cranks. You got three Expendables. What's the key to a Jason Statham franchise? And is there any character in your past that you would have liked to have played again? I always wanted to do another one of the uh, the guy Richie uh, like someone there was talks way back years back of doing Snatch Two about oh, man. yeah and I always wanted to do that I thought that would be you know th- there is a story there but um, that just that, I'm talking ten years ago or more so that never happened but um, in terms of my the franchises that we're you know you're always trying to look for a franchise if you can. I mean, a franchise is dictated on the success of doing one film right. <laughs> so if you can get it correctly, um, you've got a chance at something else. But sometimes it just doesn't work that way. But, you know, ideally it's it's insurance for the future. If you can, yeah, yeah, yeah. If you, can you know, do something, if you can find a character that people really, really do like, then uh, you're very lucky. <laughs> I'll tell you who I, 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 uh, I'm intrigued by. The beginner collateral. That guy. <laughs> he's, he's credited in the movie as Airport Man. You, you hand the briefcase to Tom Cruise. That's right. But uh, did you come up with a character name for him? Did you have anything else beyond Airport Man? Did you... <laughs> no, it was... I want to know that guy's story. Huge Michael Mann fan. I read for the um, for the taxi driver. Mm. Obviously didn't get it. <laughs> <laughs> but it was great because Michael says, listen, will you just do something for me, please? We so, you know, I'd love you to... You know, feel that you didn't waste your time coming in that yeah. means you must have got closer to Max you must have what final two final three something like that um, who knows you don't know these things uh, they, you, they you never say you, you, just, you, just, you just know you, you got the custard pie at some point <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, but that guy I'm intrigued by what happens to him after he gives the uh, the, uh, the case to Vincent that's what I want to see I want to see him yeah let's get Michael Mann to make a film and Airport Man would be a great name Airport Man Airport Man that would be a great name for a character as well <laughs> Airport Man too yeah. <laughs> speaking of Snatch there are a few phrases that have come out of your mouth on cinema that have become part of my day to day life okay <laughs> now one of them is scared the Germans will get you that's one of them which of the quotes that you get quoted at in the street that's were, probably the, the the one that most people uh, come up with just launch at you <laughs> it doesn't happen every day believe me but occasionally <laughs> there is uh, you know I think people have really people really enjoyed the, the Guy Ritchie films you know there were, there were such classics and to be a part of them is like great privilege there's just so many great one-liners in that, you know. Mm. Do you ever see Snatch Wars with... Uh, oh, God, yeah, yeah. 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 It's like Alan Ford's uh, voice the whole way through the, over the Darth Vader. It's, it's really good. <laughs> it's I, amazing. I have seen it. It's yeah, I've seen it. back to me. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. It is amazing. Um, it's hilarious. I spoke to Matthew Fawn the other week, and he says that the uh, the rights to Lockstock are going to revert 
to him and Guy Ritchie in about a week, <laughs> something like that. Fifteen years since uh, since Lockstock, so they can do whatever they w- they will with it. So, you know, he said, "I'm not sure if we're going to do a sequel. I'm not going to sure if we're going to do a reboot." But is that something you, you know? Do you have a lot of fondness for that film in particular, or is Snatch the one for you? And if so, would you revisit? No, I mean I like them equally. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> that was uh, Lockstock had more of a significant impact on on my life because you know it was my first film, and uh, who knows if I'd have never done that, what I'd be doing today. So um, yeah, and by the way, I really thought it was, it was just a quality film, in in every respect. I, I really did. Uh, I, I, it's very hard for me to choose which is my, you know, my most preferred out of those two. But um, reboot? I'm not in reboots. You I? would be. Well, you could you could be, uh, you know, one of the oh, bad yeah. guys or something. Oh yeah, of course. As if I'm going to do that. <laughs> you come in for a day, you know, some chance. <laughs> I think it's time for us to apologise, if if that's the right term. Because yeah. we think that we may be the guys that came up with the so-called nickname the Stath. The Stath. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now it's not the most original thing in the world, but I think it might have been us. And if it's been hounding you, apologies. <laughs> yeah, and in fact, I think it might have been me. Uh, but if if so, we we can't prove that categorically. But I'm pretty sure I'm the one who uh, first wrote the words the Stath. Uh So you know, is this something that that's endured now? Do you find it coming up more and more often? Well, from, Jay Fleming calls me Stath in the has done for a few years. So you, okay. you you've had a well, I added the word par- parallel thinking. Yeah. <laughs> the, oh yeah, you got the. <laughs> yeah. It makes the, you seem like some sort of god, you know. It's yeah, like, yeah, you know. it's certainly, uh, yeah, certainly much. You can blow up your chest with the. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, so, so your mates do call to your face. Do they, they do say the, the stath, or is it just no, stath? No, <laughs> one person in particular. One person, yeah, just Jay, Jay Fleming. <laughs> yeah, he calls me stath. Yeah, so. Yeah, he, he can take half the credit. <laughs> no, but to be publicly labelled that, I think, yeah. Yeah. That, that's you, you're you're responsible, yeah. Yeah, but it's a good thing. It's a good, it's a thing. good thing. You're not yeah. looking at me like it's a good thing, but it's a good thing. It's, I'm, t- <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting a little nervous. I've got my back to the door now. I'm like, can I get out in time? I can think of a lot worse names that I could have uh, <laughs> that you could have coined for me. Uh, so I'm very grateful. Thanks. No worries. Yes, no worries. I'm much appreciated. Of course, I'm sure someone else in the day claimed it, but yeah. Uh, I think, and you'll correct me if I've got this wrong, but there's a moment in Hummingbird where you threaten someone with a spoon. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> What's it like to shoot a scene like that? Because I was watching it just going, this is incredible, I can't believe I'm seeing this. There's a point where Joey Jones, the character I played, is sort of, uh, things are sort of reeling through his head and you know he's trying to make some breakfast, some cereals, and the turning point of making a decision to go and solve uh, this problem with these chaps that beat him up severely and obviously are responsible for the death of this girl he was very close to. At the time he makes the decision to go and do that bad deed, he's holding a spoon, so that seemed to to Steve's Knight is to be just a, a really obscure weapon and so much more fun than a knife. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, as weird as it was, it, it, it just seemed to be, um, you know, different. And, you know, this is a guy who's been trained and has a, a real physical sort of... Um, Ability, so mm. we uh, we wanted to keep it short and sweet, and you know, hit people where it, it counts. This, this isn't <laughs> the kind of movie where he'd deflect a rocket launch, uh, yes, with a tea tray, yes, or wrap someone up with a fire hose. But it is a it is a, a, a drama as well at its, at its heart. And uh, did you find any common ground with Joey, for example? I mean, there's there's, there's a real rags to riches element of of his storyline. Was that something that that, that chived with you? 
Um, you know, he's the everyman. He's the uh, the guy who is, uh, you know, a working class Englishman that is just, you know, he's served in served for his country. Um, you know, I've never served for my country, but I'd like to think that um, I think with all the the roles that I try and play, you try and embody them in your own particular way. It's not like I'm, you know, I ain't Daniel Day Lewis who can go and immerse himself and you know transform himself into these complicated brilliant fucking performances mm. you know I have to work within what's intuitively right for me and uh, so I think there's a little bit of me in the Joey Jones yeah uh, the bit where I'm you know bawling my eyes out <laughs> <laughs> no. yeah I, I think we're all sensitive I think you yeah. know everyone is you know has a a certain sort of a, a certain way about themselves that you know people don't like to you know, let their uh, their emotions out too often. I think people yeah. tend to suppress them and sort of hold them in. So uh, I think there's a bit of that, mate. And uh, speaking of uh, suppressing emotions and holding them in, uh, got to let you go in a second, Jason. But I wanted to ask you about life as a Nottingham Forest fan. Do you get your, do you let your emotions out often as a as a Forest fan, or uh, <laughs> I'm not a Forest fan. You're not a Forest fan. <laughs> no, would you read? That? It's all over the internet, man. Is it really? <laughs> yeah. We have a thing called uh, on the on the podcast. We do an IMD bunker where we uh, get people to debunk facts about themselves on the IMDb, and you've just debunked that because that's <laughs> that's on the IMDb. Is a keen Nottingham Forest season ticket holder. Look at that! <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm selling my tickets, away. <laughs> anyone want to buy? <laughs> do you support anyone? Let's just get, let's just clarify this. I haven't done for no. Yeah, uh, I'm I'm more into MMA than any other sport. I watch uh, a lot of the, uh, the the UFC fights. Um, I have since it's uh, it's it first came onto the scene. I mean, mm. a lot of that stuff is what I look up to and what I try and we try and use elements of what they're practically doing uh, uh, in in the, in the movies because you know it's one of the biggest growing sports and mm. still is to this day. Mm. Uh, it's huge around the world, countries all over the place. You know, and they they practice in jujitsu and striking and you know kickboxing. Uh, all kinds of it's basically it's the uh, amalgamation of all the best aspects of all the martial arts yeah, put, yeah. put into one fighting style and uh, you know for me it's I love that stuff it's brilliant I can see why you prefer that instead of uh, not supporting Nottingham Forest okay. <laughs> they've, just well lost their, they've just lost their most famous fan it's, 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 a, it's a bad day for them sorry Nottingham Forest <laughs> well listen it's been a pleasure having you on the show thanks very much best luck to the future the state thanks Chris thanks man cheers Okay, time for reviews now. Uh, Hummingbird will be reviewed on next week's show. We've talked about World War Said a little bit. Let's mm. talk about it some more. Thoughts yeah. on World War Said, Helen? Hi. Um, I, as you may have guessed, I'm a big fan of the book of this movie, but I have made my peace with the fact that the film has pretty much nothing to do with the book. Genuinely, if you took a drink every time that something in the book happens on screen, you will have had about four drinks by the end of the movie that's pretty good and specific still be, you, you have four, four drinks yeah well, it, depends, it depends if you're doing shots so if you're taking like a finger of beer if it's a finger of beer you're not going to be very drunk at all okay um, so yeah it, this is this is just a completely different thing it is a summer action blockbuster that happens to share a name with the title of the book I, I said on Twitter I think that uh, Max Brooks has essentially been Philip K. Dicked he has they've taken his concept and they've taken the name and they've left the rest but uh, yeah so Brad Pitt is a former UN investigator who's retired to spend more time with his wife and kids Jerry Lane Jerry Lane worst name for a hero in well, the history of movies <laughs> and no. here we are it's pretty bad it's pretty bad so they live in Philadelphia they're planning a little 
day trip out in the country or something, as far as we can tell. Um, and there are some disturbing reports on the news of stuff happening around the world, but they're all like, eh, stuff happens. <laughs> and uh, they drive into the city and uh, then everything starts happening at once. And no. we literally go from zero zombies to all the zombies in about a 20-minute sequence. But these are not the George Romero zombies. These are not the George are Romero the zombies. And as Max, physiologically impossible fast zombies. As Max Brooks said, these are not my zombies. These are f- very fast zombies and they also have this thing where they kind of swarm. They re- react to noise and they will swarm and sort of form like ants do, you know, sort of uh, hills and bridges for themselves to get to their prey. Um, now, you might think logically that if like, say, I don't know, four billion of the world's population were turned into these super fast, super ferocious creatures there would be no hope for us and you would be mathematically right um however uh in the film you would be wrong because brad pitt reckons he might have figured something out so anyway as a blockbuster it's fine the effects are actually pretty well done Mm -hmm. um you know brad pitt is actually you know very good uh you know he, he holds the attention he travels all around the world he meets people he talks to people uh it's just do you get a sense of uh, the, the mm. production problems that plagued this movie? Is well, there a scene where, you know, for example, he's he's handed fresh pages <laughs> and, <laughs> and screams in yeah. horror? Screams in major, in horror. There kind of is, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Dossiers, they call them in the film. <laughs> no, uh, you do get a sense of that in the in the fact that the the film starts with a huge scene, has a massive action sequence in the middle in Jerusalem, mm-hmm. which again, if you've read the book, makes no sense. But anyway, and then at the <laughs> end, has this very tense but extremely small scale scene in Cardiff yes you heard me is it him playing <laughs> chess with a zombie it's him playing chess it's, <laughs> it's, it's not a million miles off that honestly uh, it, it's very tense and so it's well done so I'm not kind of you know naming it as one of the great films that's ruined by the ending but it is a, a much smaller scale thing and that was the reshot ending the original ending had a big battle in Russia which also makes no sense from the point of view of the book anyway um, so it's as a film in its own right it's good as an adaptation of World War Z. It isn't. So, yeah, we, we give it three stars. These big apocalyptic summer blockbusters have become self-aware. And by that, I mean, <laughs> there, there used to be, there's no longer a scene in which some, the weird thing starts to happen at the beginning and everyone stops and points it and goes, that's a bit unusual. They've skipped that. Do you remember how in the old days there'd be a bit where people would like, in Independence Day, they'd point at the sky at this crazy spaceship over the, over. No longer do they do that. So the, the zombies come and it applies also to Zod's spaceship and everyone's like oh it's another apocalypse yes. it's this world where, in which people go oh they're, they're, that's zombies well they're at least zombies. it's not it's word, Zod it's zombies the word, zom- the word zombie is used in a report from a uh, US naval base or US okay. military base in South Korea okay. which mm. we looked at one point it seems to be in the market in this movie they've yeah. almost been ashamed of the fact that it's a zombie film and they, they've gone out of their way until the very last possible moment to hide the fact that there are zombies in the film that's, well I don't, they're barely zombies zombie. aren't they I don't yeah, know I think well. it's more that Brad Pitt's the big selling point so obviously all the posters and most of the promo stuff revolves around him okay. I think they've salvaged this it was obviously a yeah. catastrophe Vanity Fair wrote, we, you wrote a very interesting piece Helen, on this as well in the magazine it was obviously fraught with difficulties they changed the ending everyone knows that you do see the original ending in montage at the end weirdly. you do a little bit yeah so it's still there and it sets it up for another for another film if this one really? does well I quite yeah. enjoyed it I have to say the amazing thing is that uh, that's the most positive take I've heard in the movie uh, we gave it three stars which is fine the recommendation as we always say but mm. the interesting thing about this movie is almost every time I've asked someone what they thought of it they go you know what it 
it's not as bad as you might expect. That's hardly <laughs> a going recommendation, I would say, but there you go. No, it, it has many strong points. Um, it doesn't make a lick of sense, but okay. it has many strong points. It, it's just not an adaptation of the book, so don't go along okay. expecting that. So World War C, we gave three. Last movie uh, to discuss this week uh, is Before Midnight, the conclusion of Richard Linklater, Ethan Hawke and Julie Delby's Before dot 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 series. Which started with Before Sunrise, continued with Before Sunset, and now Jesse and Celine are back, living as a couple, and enjoying a lovely summer on a Greek island. But these are ideal, truly idyllic. Well, this is this is a, an actually a wonderful movie, to be honest, because there's something magic about going back to these characters and just watching how their lives progress. And even though I'm not at the same stage in my life that they are, quite, um, but I have seen the, the previous two films more or less when they came out, and and it's just. It's a fascinating experiment to go back to the same characters and see how their lives have changed and how they've moved on, and uh, and and you know they do it brilliantly. Uh, you know they're obviously co-writing as well as as, as acting these mm. characters, and and you can tell because they feel so inhabited by you know inhabited in them, um, and it's it's kind of it's kind of magical and you do honestly feel you feel the reality of it and you feel the weight of what's happening you know so even the smallest decisions and the smallest kind of I don't know mean comments to each other have a kind of a, a weight that you wouldn't get in most Hollywood films you know, most of the time people can say horrible things to each other and you just you kind of shrug it off because they've got some snappy comeback but in this like if somebody says something horrible it really hurts and equally if they say something lovely it's it's incredibly moving so it's uh it just has a reality that you don't expect to see in ever really on film and uh and it's and it's kind of wonderful so i i was thoroughly on board so it's before midnight which indicates it's yeah. going to be darker and <laughs> well it's i don't know if it's darker but it's basically a, a, a late evening walk for the two of them across the island to a hotel okay. room um and and things go up and down and up and down and i won't say where they end okay um but it's it's pretty you know you get very very invested in in how they're doing and and what's happening with them and they they have kids now so they have twin girls together and then obviously he has a son from previous marriage who was mentioned in the previous film who he's also concerned with so that kind of causes some tension between them and uh yeah honestly i would i would be i would welcome another one every 10 years until they die is the tagline <laughs> that sounded more dark than anything you it probably did. did. It did. It wasn't meant to come <laughs> out. They all die. It wasn't meant to come out quite that quickly. All the zombies come. Before eulogy. Is the tagline zero dark flirty? <laughs> no, but it should be. <laughs> all right, cool. Um, also out this week, we don't have time to cover these in depth, sadly, is The Rock in Snitch, which is decent three-star fun. Uh, Spike Island, which is Matt Whitecross's lovely companion piece of swords to Made of Stone. It's about the Stone Roses gig of Spike Island. Uh, and I Am Breathing, which is a... Uh, a heart-wrenching documentary about a, a man who's dying of motor neuron disease and that is uh, four stars uh, and that is it for this week's Empire Podcast join us next week for more film-related fun where we'll be joined by three titans of US comedy Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg the writers, directors and in Seth's case the star of This Is The End and a man who is Brick Tamland Mr. Steve Carell who's here to natter about Despicable Me too. let's hope he doesn't bring a trident because things tend to escalate quickly when that happens really until then it's bye from Helen goodbye it's bye from Phil. Goodbye. And it's good day to Sam. Farewell. Is that not how you say? Okay, anyway. Maybe see you again. Good is a greeting. Damn it! All right. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's goodbye from me. I'm off to uh, read Fifty Shades of Grey for the first time, obviously. <clears throat> see you next week.